Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast look at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me as always is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? Doing very well, Darren. How are, how are you this evening? I'm good. Are you and this week? Because this, week, this year even, because I think this is at the moment scheduled to be our first episode of 2021. So I don't know if this will be the first time that I will say Happy New Year to you, Andrew, given that, you know, Maybe, we may be preempted. Like, we don't we know what bank. will happen in 2021. Maybe this will be, <laughs> yeah. be found, like, thousands of years later by aliens. And it's the, one of the few records of, like, they're, they're trying to piece, piece together what, what, what happened in this world. But, um... Yeah, or or it could just be on iTunes. Um, Yeah, one of those two options. Um, But yeah, so I don't know with Mank coming in, with the possibility of Hillbilly Elegy coming in, I don't know if this will be the first time that I say Happy New Year to you, Andrew, but I do know that it will be the first time I say so to our guests. Happy New Year to you, Max. How are things? Oh, thank you very much for wishing me a Happy New Year. Uh, (laughs) Suddenly I feel... Exactly. Suddenly (laughs) I feel full of hope that I haven't had in... I don't know. How many months has it been? It feels like hundreds. Uh, anyway. <laughs> uh, perfect. Yes. So we are discussing today, we're discussing Sherlock Jr. Uh, but we have a very, very special guest lined up here, the wonderful Mr. Max Tolan. And the reason that we have him on is because um, a couple of months ago, so I think last year around January, Max published a an article. Uh, well, I'm familiar uh, with it from Bright Lights Film Journal where he looked at the IMDb's 250 around trends, around the way the films moved on that list and as you might have guessed, because this is a podcast where we cover the 250, that was right on top of my kind of big nerdy film sort of like interest area. So I figured, you know, we've been doing this podcast now for about four years, 215 episodes, and we still have no idea how the list actually works. We thought we'd invite in an expert. So Max, welcome to the show. Well, I really appreciate you considering me an expert just because I wrote this one article. Uh, but yeah, the- it's a good article. Oh, thank you. That's very kind. Uh, and I- the internet's great. <laughs> and I'm sure you've uh, I'm sure you've listed it in the show notes so other people can take a can take a look at it. It's 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 quite long, but hopefully it's a compelling read anyway. Yeah, I the reason why I made this article is because about five years ago I noticed that one of my favorite films of all time, Twelve Angry Men, had cracked the IMDb 250s top ten. Uh, and somewhere in my brain, it was like, did it, was it always that high? It feels like it used to be lower. And so I just took a look at the top 25 films where they had been, uh, where they were at that time. And then where they had been, you know, earlier using snapshots from the Wayback machine on the internet archive. And I was stunned to see what sort of movement had happened. Um, so I applied for a teeny tiny grant so that I could get, um, like a student work assistant to, to help me look at a larger data set. And so we looked at the entire 250 from April 2004 to April 2019. Uh, we decided to only consider films that had spent at least three consecutive years on the list. And that, that gave us a, a set of, a three, of 340 films that had been there for at least three years. And we just mapped each one of them to see what it had done on the list. And the paper is so long because that's how many things we found. It's, it's crazy the kind of patterns um, that, that showed up. But basically the idea, just very, very simply, the idea was to look for common behavior and to look for rare behavior on the list. What do films usually do on the list and what do films unusually do on the list? And what we found out is that 
nearly 80% of films on the IMDb Top 250 over the time interval that we looked at were either trending downward or were like like a new release film that would rocket up to some high rank and then slowly trend downward. Uh, every once in a while you found a film that would like trend up and stop and then trend downward, but of those three kinds of films, that makes up almost 80% of the movies on the list. So that leaves about 20% of movies that are doing something different, trending slowly upward. And so we thought... If there are any characteristics in common uh, between that 20% of films that is slowly trending upward or maybe was falling and then reversed course and started trending upward, if there's anything in common among those films, maybe that suggests that there is some sort of ideological trend in society more broadly at work, and so we attempted to investigate that. And we found some stuff. Uh, I don't know how much you want me to go into this, but that was that was me <laughs> trying to do the short version of the paper. <laughs> no, I, well, this is actually fascinating because I, I kind of get to something I want to ask there, which is so in your opening section of the paper, you mentioned that like you have this kind of idea about how critics talk about films, mm. for example, and how kind of like people who write academically about film picture cinema as being. And I think you kind of allude to the possibility of looking at the IMDb list as a kind of a more reflective, perhaps, of a certain... I don't, I don't don't know if you call it popular taste, given that it's self-selective, but perhaps yeah. a broader or... Yeah. yeah, you're right. I mean, this this is perhaps the most tainted data set of all time when it comes to... We don't know exactly how the IMDb algorithm works, at least when it comes to how they consider what a regular voter is um, and whether they purge votes or not. They say they don't, but the statistics seem to suggest otherwise <laughs> and so on. Uh, yeah, there's it's, 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 pretty, it's pretty crazy how much we don't know. But if we try to, you know, control for those trends and try to control for the fact that yeah not everybody's on imdb hardly anybody votes on it and yet still some movies have millions of votes so it's i mean it's a data set with that should be of some interest um to film academics and critics the idea was just saying that hey if if you're trying to think about trends in filmmaking and you're only looking at it from an academic angle, only looking at films that are interesting to academics, you're probably going to miss out on the films that actually define what a culture is thinking about at a given moment. So, and I, and I give examples of this in the article, but just the idea of if you're writing about nostalgia films um, and you're not writing about the help you've missed something because the help is on the 250 and all the other film. I, I picked on a couple of authors. It was totally mean. I hope nobody ever does it to me. Um, I'm so, sort of sad that I did it as a scholar to pick on these authors for the corpuses that, that they selected. But the idea was simply that if you're not really considering what the public likes, then you're not really uh, analyzing the pop culture phenomenon of nostalgia very adroitly. And so the idea was, let's take a look at what is on the IMDb 250 as a way of perhaps trying to set critical priorities for what we look at as scholars. Yeah, because that, that's one of the things I'm actually kind of vaguely disappointed that we covered Forrest Gump, which is very much, you know, like ground zero in terms of the article, in terms Just of what we're talking genuinely disappointed that we covered it. <laughs> yeah, there, I, there was, I agree, Andrew. There was no, there was no clause at the I end of that I sentence. Liked, I think I liked it more than Darren. In fact, like a lot more. I think that the, the, um, this, this might be... One of the things that drew drew Darren to you, <laughs> yeah, like, like a siren call. Somebody else hates the fact that Forrest somebody Gump else is so hates high. Forrest Gump. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know what I don't know what to say about that. It's just that I mean I have a lot of political reasons for not liking the ahistorical wish fantasies uh, that that populate that movie. 
Um, there, <laughs> I, I rail against it for a while in the paper, so I won't recapitulate that here. But uh, I gotta tell you, as a document of what certain segments or many segments of America want to believe about themselves, Forrest Gump is, I mean, it's, it's more important than It's a Wonderful Life. Like, it might be the most American movie ever made, because it, again, it just so keenly crystallizes what we wish were true or what we want to believe. And... And yeah, I, I was, I actually, this is a stupid aside, but I uh, was rewatching the straight story the other day and you know, the, the one from Lynch with the guy on the, the old man on the riding lawnmower. And there's a moment early in this film where they're discussing, you know, uh, how good the riding lawnmower is. And I'm like, what an American discussion to be, to be obsessing over your riding lawnmower. And for some reason I was, uh, I, I had reason about a week ago to take a look at Forrest Gump again, didn't watch the whole thing, but was jumping around looking at a couple of scenes. And I noticed that moment with him on his riding lawnmower taking such <laughs> pride in mowing the grass and that's when of course when jenny shows back up as an adult and it was like wow this film really does understand america it's even got the riding lawnmower in it uh but anyway <laughs> is there a riding lawnmower in sling blade as well <laughs> it was, seems like there ought to be was yeah there like a 90s kind of riding lawnmower thing we always did like we would watch these riding lawnmower <laughs> movies like here in Ireland, where we don't really have riding lawnmowers. <laughs> like, I don't know if I've seen a riding lawnmower kind of um, up close. In the flesh, I mean, I've, yeah. I've, yeah, I've been in, 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 in America. I just, I, I just assume that they exist. Well, here in Missouri, there are plenty of them. <laughs> in fact, you might even hear one in the background. It's just, it's one of those things like a train horn that just sort of appears in the Midwest from time to time. So, well, it's, it's great. Like it's, it's kind of putting, putting wheels on things. Like the, the, um, like there, there's, there's scooters in the supermarkets as well. Mm. Like the, like the, the mobility scooters and things. Like they're, they're. There's just more um, uh, vehicles, I guess. Yes, yes. If you ever have cause to walk into a Walmart, which I don't suggest, but which I do several times a week out of necessity, uh, yes, they have the mobility scooters <laughs> in there. Um, all the, it's a very American thing. I thought you, when you said putting wheels on things, I thought you were going to talk about Marty McFly's clutched skateboard in Black Back <laughs> to the Future, because, of course, that's another Zemeckis film that is also stampeding up the IMDb 250. So, uh uh, anyway, there's a lot of places this conversation could go. The idea was we looked for trends in these films and we found trends relating to fantasy, relating to uh, sentimentality, specifically in the concept, in the context of the male melodrama, uh, women-centered melodramas, which of course were the, 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 the central point of the melodrama as a genre, um, are, are not on the IMDb 250 and, and basically never have been. Uh, but Chaplin melodramas, Chaplin sentimental films are stampeding up the list. We even recently just saw the entrance of the circus onto the list which is one of the most correctly forgotten and maligned Chaplin films of all time and somehow it's back on the 250 people just can't get enough of Chaplin these days I don't understand it uh because I, well, I like Keaton a lot more but that's what we're going to talk about today <laughs> but but yeah male melodramas crime films you know stuff like seven stuff like lock stock and two smoking barrels you know um, you know big violent pictures um and then ahistorical fantasies 
uh, stuff like Life is Beautiful, um, which, uh, you know, like he, he's clearly ne- knows zero things about the Holocaust, put this movie together. Uh, and then, of course, racial reconciliation fantasy sort of rounds out the list of, of trends that we found. And, of course, there's a bunch of trivia that we could get into, too. Ho- hopefully that's enough of a teaser to yeah. that people will take a look at the article. All right, well, yeah, I'm going yeah. to be inter- interested to kind of hear hear your uh, views on Keaton. Because, they, 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 like, I would have imagined that's... Um, kind of your the kind of critique of some of the um nostalgia and kind of um wish fulfillment cinema might mm. might 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 be directed towards like the likes of the general or um oh yeah the general is an interesting that, one actually in this context yeah because that, that 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 was one of the it was it was like the general and gone with the wind were the, were these two movies that were doing really well on on the on the two fifty or so Darren tells me <laughs> yeah the, the general is still what in the sixties or seventies it's pretty high right yeah. I mean it's it's within the top hundred yeah um yeah. and Sherlock Junior's down at almost two hundred at this point but. Uh, and just barely uh-huh. scraping in, actually, as well, because this is one of the, again, one of, not to jump too much into the mechanics of yeah. the 250. I think you pointed out, like, the way in which the, the the black art of how the IMDb determines what makes the list and what doesn't, how they revise the terms, you know, ver- you know perpetually. Now, yes. You know, yeah, you're talking about you're talking about the minimum vote threshold. Yes, which and is what in, happened exactly with the, with this yeah. movie with Sterling. Yeah, King. in July 2012, they raised the minimum vote threshold for films that could be considered for the list from 3,000 votes up to 25,000 votes, and a whole bunch of films got sliced got sliced off the list uh, because of that raised minimum vote threshold, Sherlock Jr. being one of them. But it reappeared a few years later once it had gotten up to 25,000 votes, and it was even higher on the list. I think one of the one of the best cases of this is Harakiri. Which is yes. in the twenties right now, and or it was off. It 30s, was never yeah. on the list at all, and then just appeared, just like standing on top of this mountain of films. And by the way, I totally agree. I love Harakiri. It's such a good movie. Uh, so it was. It was a day of celebration for me when that <laughs> reappeared on the list. It was fantastic. I am thrilled that somebody else celebrates when stuff like that happens on the internet. Um, I'm glad that I found, found literally one other person who does that. I feel well, like such a third wheel <laughs> because there are, because there are so many things that are just points of sadness like every time a superhero movie stays on the list it's like come on guys vote this thing off it's terrible like why 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 is joker at nine which it's not anymore but that's where it premiered at right it rocketed up to nine and then and then fell it was it's like that that's crazy haven't you seen any (laughs) scorsese movies it's it's stealing everything and they're better than all of it like anyway we've seen a lot of scorsese movies (laughs) recently yeah (laughs) pretty recently yeah yeah Yeah, uh, the king of comedies my favorite just throwing that in there yeah it's surprising actually that... <laughs> so, so you should have loved half of joker then right? no i mean like <laughs> I, I despised almost all of joker because it's like uh, all you're doing is ripping off this great movie but doing none of the interesting things that this other great movie did like it's 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 it, you can't even be considered a good homage because an homage should at least continue the conversation it should build on something and and this was just you know stealing little bits and pieces for totally useless purposes as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I hated Joker. I guess that's obvious. But um, I mean, I'm still happy that uh, Hildur Goodness' daughter got an Oscar. Um, the Oscar was really for Chernobyl, but fine. Uh, I'm glad she got her Oscar. We haven't reached that stage of is it a movie yet? It's like twin <laughs> But before we, before we move on from the article, then one quick question because you mentioned that like there was a host of trivia that you saw that maybe didn't fit with the article that you were writing that maybe you know didn't kind of didn't have anywhere to put it in. 
what would be like what's the most interesting nugget that isn't in the article that you found while you were looking at it going that's interesting or i didn't expect that or that's very revealing but it didn't fit in i squeezed almost everything in there that that i thought was worth mentioning but uh i I think that the thing that almost everybody misses is going to be that very very long footnote um about the anti-indian cinema bias i i go on for practically a page worth of text about how imdb artificially removed a whole bunch of movies from india um, systematically over the course of a few years um, at, without explaining why they decided that, well, one country's movies just don't belong on this list. And then they made like a whole other Indian movie list. And, anyway, like it was, it was really also um, called the IMDb. What's that? <laughs> was, was it also IMDb, but the I is for Indian. That's right. Um. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, <laughs> no, that's good. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I understand this idea that because a lot of people in the West aren't watching populist Bollywood movies, that maybe that should be on another list. But it's like, it's exactly what um, Jun Ho Bong said about the Oscars. He's like, they want to pretend that they're international, but it's really just a local film festival. And the IMDb Top 250 wants to pretend that it's totally international too, but it's almost all American films, a couple of token European art films, some token Japanese films, and that's basically it. And I, and I don't know why they just decided we're just not going to put Indian films on this list. Are they just upset that, you know, Indian voters can vote? They, again, they seem to have rescinded this policy for the most part, but uh, I don't know. It was, it was just one of those things where like the voters on the list are already biased enough. We don't need the list itself to, 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 to make it even, to make it even less representative of world cinema culture. So uh, yeah, like I said, I jammed that into a footnote. It's a really long footnote. I'm sure nobody read it, but it's something that made me really mad, but didn't seem to fit anywhere else in the article. Oh, yeah, we, we, we do a kind of a season or we, we would do a season this year, not being the year that it is where we actually have two experts in Indian cinema. We have Ireland's expert in Indian cinema um, oh, cool. and her boyfriend who come over and talk about Indian films, which is great on the 250. And we did, well, we but- notice... Babu will be the first to tell you that he's, he's not an expert on Indian oh, G- Yeah, no, G- it's the expert and her boyfriend. It's like Giovanna <laughs> and Babu's there just for as a third wheel. Um, well, but, no, he's, he's, he's got, got a lot of useful um, cricket. We did. Um, when, we did when we did Lagan, Babu was actually able to pause the movie and explain to us how cricket works, which was a remarkable feat. Um, I better go listen to that bowling. episode then. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, we, we noticed that as well, that yeah, there was this point around about 2012 where just every Indian movie disappeared. Just and then disappeared. Around, yeah, just like mysteriously, like oh, literally overnight between like, yeah, 2nd of October, 3rd of October, gone. And then they begin creeping back in around about 2016. And then you start seeing odd behavior as well around them where... Uh, things like the you know a movie that has nine out of ten in terms of like rating, which would make it one of the best movies ever, appears for a single day on the list and then is gone. Uh, which is interesting. Again, like I, I wonder like what the mechanics are behind the because obviously the you know they publish the formula, they publish the formula that explains it. They don't necessarily determine or explain who a regular voter is for the purposes of waiting and stuff like that. Um, well, and but- and again, they say that they can't explain that because if they did, people would try to game the system. Even more than they're already trying to do it, yeah. but you know, but all you have to do is you have to just look at all the look at all the one votes because of course you can rank a, you can rate a film from one to ten. You look at all the one votes on something like Black Panther, and you're like, well, there are already people out there trying to game the system. They, Black Panther's never been on the list, despite how much it was loved by how many people loved it, because there were just enough one votes to keep it off. So people already game the system. So yeah. 
Yeah, again, notable that was it uh, the only movie between Doctor Strange and Spider-Man Far From Home that didn't make the list from the Marvel Cinematic <laughs> Universe were Black Panther and uh, Captain Marvel, because of course they were. Um, of course the they were, exactly. Make yeah. the judgment of what you will. All right then, enough about, the, enough about the mechanics of the list. When we asked you what you wanted to talk about, because we wanted to have you on, you said that you'd really love to talk about uh, Sherlock Jr. So what yes. is it about Sherlock Jr. that kind of grabbed your attention outside of the, the chance to kick Chaplin uh, even more when he was down? Uh, you know, okay, so to be fair to Chaplin, though, I really, really love City Lights in modern times, and I appreciate the historical importance of the great dictator, uh, the, the, but I do not understand why the kid and the circus are on there, but that's just me. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, uh, Keaton, what can I say? I don't know. I, my my love affair with Keaton doesn't have like a, like a flashpoint for it. Like, I can't point to a single day in high school when I watched my first Keaton film, and I just knew he was the guy for me. It, it just sort of built up slowly over time. I'm not even sure but the first time I was when I wa- or how old I was the first time I watched Sherlock Jr. I imagine uh, I was in my first or second year of uh, you know of undergrad, so I would have been like you know nineteen or twenty when I saw it for the first time. And again, it's it's something that that I only really realized was as magnificent as I now realize it is on my you know third or fourth watch. But now, whenever I teach you know silent film night uh, in, in if I'm teaching a film class. It's always the the centerpiece of that. Some people will pick one film to show. Some film professors will pick one film to show. I, I'll do like a series of, of shorts, and so I'll show uh, a trip to the moon so that they can see Amelius. I I show uh, the country doctor so that they can see a D.W. Griffith that is not terribly racist, though I certainly talk about the racism. <laughs> uh, then I show Unchain Andalou so that they can see something completely bonkers, you know, art cinema from the twenties, so that it's n- so they don't just think it's all all boring Hollywood stuff. Um, and then I end. That's the What's, um, yeah. Go ahead. That's the kind of um, the uh, Dadaist or kind of um, surrealist movie, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's the yeah. That's the one with the, yeah with the with the eye slice in it. Oh. Um, yeah, yeah. And you know, dragging the priests behind the piano and all that. Yeah, the ants crawling out of the hand. All that. Um, Salvador Dali and Luis Buñuel. And so I get to talk about surrealism and Dadaism and other art, mo- art movements of the 20s very briefly um, and then show them this crazy movie, uh, you know, and I don't, I don't want them to know what to do with it. That's the whole point. But then after we take our break, we watch those three movies, do a little bit of discussion. Uh, this is, of course, when we're like live in a room, but, you know, not not possible now. Uh, but uh, but then uh, then after the break, we come back and, and we watch uh, uh, Sherlock Jr., which is... Um, it goes over so well every time. I used to switch it up between showing the general or showing the cameraman or showing city lights or even showing something like Metropolis, maybe like a, like a, not a comedy, um, uh, or Harold Lloyd safety last, obviously. Uh, that's great. Um, but anyway, I, I just sort of settled on Sherlock Jr. because it's so concise. It's 45 minutes long. It does everything you would want a silent comedy to do and it still kills. I don't know how else to put it. Like I I'm in a room full of mostly engineering students. I like I don't have art majors um at at the, at the institution um at my institution uh, but it it doesn't matter. Like they maybe they appreciate all the engineering behind the visual effects, but either way the 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 movie kills. And and when they write their film logs um for, you know, the screening, they almost all say I had absolutely no idea I'd ever laugh at a silent movie, but this one this one really got me. So it's, uh, you know, there's no turning back on Sherlock Jr. It's it's still perfect. And for every other movie from the 20s that has a bunch of problematic stuff in it where you're like, yeah, the T-roll in college is really good, but he's in blackface while he's doing it, you know, or something like that. Uh, there's there, I, I don't know. I, I didn't see anything in, in Sherlock Jr. that that's, the, you know, that that's that's problematic. Like it's it's just perfect. 
So is maybe I missed something. Keaton movie. No, yeah. it's is not. It and movie? it's yeah. not my favorite Keaton movie. Oh. The General is my favorite Keaton movie. Uh, and I know that Andrew is going to get mad at me now because. Uh, <laughs> no, no, I, I was just kind of curious <laughs> no, 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 about no, no. it, like um, to, to, to see kind of um, like how how do you kind of uh, reconcile that? here's 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 the way that i reconcile it one the reason why keaton chose to be a confederate in the general i mean he explained very concisely he said comedy only works if you're the underdog i have to be on the losing side for the jokes to be funny that was his that was his reasoning but also that once he had once he had selected that he he made what is considered by some critics to be the most period accurate civil war movie ever made like if you if you can if you compare it to something like like Gone with the Wind, for instance, I mean it's night and day. Gone with the Wind is total wish fulfillment. The 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 the, the comic universe of Buster Keaton, he manages to to compose things like their Matthew Brady photographs. He really really cares about the period detail, and then he basically throws all that away in favor of doing you know this this incredible series of of gags. And, and so, yeah, I think that he's actually very reverent of the period. And I think that ultimately the fact that it's set during the Civil War doesn't even matter, except for the fact that he gets to tell that one joke, if you lose this war, don't blame me, which is hilarious. It's, it's one of the great Civil War, one of the only good Civil War jokes ever told. <laughs> uh, and, you know, and then we have this cavalcade of, of, you know, chase scene stunt work and, and, and everything else about the movie that's fantastic. Yeah, it's it's actually really high on my personal top 100. Uh I cuz I cuz of course I'm such a nerd I made one of those. The the general is the general's my number 2 of oh, all wow. time. Oh, yeah. I, so, I think it, it maybe comes to something um that that um that we've spoken about before about a movie not being responsible for um kind of people's reactions to it. So like like for the like we've spoken about like the um, movies like um, Fight Club and um, Gone Girl and um, like m movies that are very popular but is, is, is some some of the audience you can argue d d doesn't kind of get the satire or respond to it in a, in 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 a different way um, like for example the the, the there there is there's some kind of I suppose suspicion around the general that a lot of the popularity of it on the list is from kind of this um, civil war nostalgia, like S similar the, to yeah, like Gone with the Wind or whatever. That's sort of yeah. Thing. I exactly, see where yeah. I see where you're coming from on that, but I don't think of Keaton as being in the slightest nostalgic. He is no. one of the most unsentimental directors out there. It's just about you know how can you be a determined figure against the infernal machine of the universe and somehow thread the needle of physics and win the girl at the end. And again, like, I don't, I don't think that there's no like romanticized music playing behind like uh, some mammy walking by like that. That's not in this movie. You know what I mean? Like, no. it's not, it's not saying, look at how pure and wonderful the American South was in the antebellum period. There's, there's none of that. It's, it, it's just this, it's unsentimentalized. And and again, the the fact that he got all the period details so right, he even tried to shoot with the original train, which is crazy. He wanted the real train from the Andrews raid, which obviously they told him, no, you can't, you know, and, and he had to shoot in Oregon instead of in, well, wherever it was, Tennessee or whatever, uh, where it actually happened. Uh, but 
but he he got the detail as accurate as he could not that that necessarily matters for how good the film is but none of that accuracy is in the service of nostalgia and you could argue that usually accuracy is not in the service of nostalgia like you watch like a michael mann movie like he really cares about like how the go fast boats go fast and how the guns are fired and how you crack a safe none of that's nostalgic um the people who are doing nostalgia people like zemeckis don't care at all about history they're you know gleefully falsifying it um so i would i would argue quite the opposite this is that this is perhaps unfortunately set during the civil war and again very unfortunately that he's playing a confederate uh would-be soldier you know who becomes a lieutenant at the end uh but i don't think it's nostalgic for for that period of time at all i i just think it was a a decision that i have to be on the losing side in order to be the underdog for the jokes Mm. i I think that's all it was. Now, if people would take it differently, I mean, yeah, yeah, of course people can take it differently. And I'm sorry that they are taking it differently. But you watch something like Gone with the Wind and you're like, well, that's the only way you can take this. (laughs) Right. And you you watch something like Forrest Gump and you're like, well, that's the only way you can take this. You watch something like The Wolf of Wall Street. And no matter how many people tell me, oh, it's a satire. I'm like, no, it's not. It's a gleeful celebration of Jordan Belfort. If you want to see a satire, watch The Big Short. Now I do, I have had some students who I've shown the big short to who are like, yeah, it's a totally pro wall street thing. I'm like, did you watch the same movie I watched? Uh, so, I mean, there are different ways that a, that a, that a creator can try to make a critique or not make a critique. And, and yeah, of course an audience, you know, can't be controlled in, in how they'll react to something, but, and I'm not trying to say that authorial intent is the most important thing because it's totally not, but it just doesn't seem like Keaton was trying to do that with, with the, with the general at all. We're 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 actually in this in the same camp on Wolf of Wall Street. We we did a Wolf of Wall Street episode, and I think I was the only person the um kind of uh, repping uh, the Big Shorts. Um, <laughs> the Big Shorts, yes. one of the greatest <laughs> films yeah. ever made, yeah. in my opinion. And uh, yeah, I've even written on it. I I adore that movie, and I wish more people would learn from its editing. I wish that even Adam McKay and Hank Corwin who actually directed and edited the film had learned from it when they made vice, because clearly they didn't learn anything when they made vice terrible. Anyway, uh-huh. uh, sorry, sorry. I'll stop. I'll stop. <laughs> All right. Um, I think that's a nice segue then into the three questions before we jump into the spoiler zone for Sherlock jr. And I'm actually, again, yes. the fact that you've actually got a what's list a of nice 100 segue favorite there? films, I think you have to say, <laughs> <laughs> in, well, Max saying that, Let's not let's not continue kicking Wolf of Wall Street. I think was the nice segue. So, you know, you know how we can continue not kicking the Wolf of Wall Street by asking these three questions. There we go. There we go. Um, yeah, but uh, okay. So to get us started, then. So, and I think we know the answer to this already. But do you think that Sherlock Jr. belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Yes, absolutely. I do like that you paused. I do like that you gave proper consideration to it. I, <laughs> the weight is on you. <laughs> the, the weight was on me, but uh, yeah, there, I, I didn't have to think very long about that one. I just, I just wanted to make sure that if somebody, if Andrew was supposed to answer first, that I wasn't, I wasn't oh, jumping sorry. all over top of him. <laughs> but yes, absolutely. No hesitation there whatsoever. And Andrew, what about yourself? Um, yeah, yeah, I, I, I think I would. I mean, the, the um. I think what 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 Max said is 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 very true. Um, this movie does kill. Um, it is it it is it is hilarious, and you don't maybe expect as a contemporary viewer 
to watch a silent movie. You maybe you maybe expect to appreciate it more than enjoy it. Um, but the, this 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 is very enjoyable, and I don't I don't I don't know if um, if it belongs under two fifty, but. I think if if you're going to have some silent movies there, I'd I'd probably I'd, pro I'd probably prefer it to the general, um, but it, just just in the sense that, like I I I get what Max is saying about the kind of the kind of um, how um, how much authenticity there was to um, an art to to the general, but I think I just I I just really enjoyed this more. So if I was going to have if I was going to represent Keaton on the list and could only pick one, I'd probably go for this. Well, there's more technical effects wizardry for sure in Sherlock Jr., which is, uh, I think, more surprising and more maybe more endearing to students when I show it to them today because they don't expect any of that either. Uh, hmm. And and I get it. There's no historical baggage to this one. It just takes place in a genre-filled dream fantasy land, which is, again, perfect. So anybody can walk into it without without the baggage. And it's concise. It's only 45 minutes long. Yeah. I totally get I totally get your choice, Andrew. Seriously. Like, I, I rank it differently, but I totally get why you put it where you put it. It's a good reasoning. Particularly coming out of a season of Scorsese movies where they're all typically about three hours long. Andrew's like, thank goodness, finally a movie that's the right length. Um, it is worth noting, because Andrew is going to ask this question, um, I did actually check with Matthew Geron, the silent film scholar. He said that Technically, it's not a short because in the 20s, any film of five reels or more counted as a feature. So this is exactly five reels long. There was apparently some push to make it longer. Apparently, Keaton had to edit it down after uh, less than friendly test screenings. And the uh, distributor tried to get him to add another 11 minutes. But he said, no, it works perfectly as it is. So, yes, this is actually technically a feature film. It was only in the 1930s that film lens apparently became standardized uh, with six reels. That's an hour. Uh, becoming sort of the the average feature length or considered to be a feature length. So oh, that's so interesting. The IMDb aren't going to just change their mind and decide that it's not a feature film and kick it For out. some reason, I um, I thought that the Oscar cutoff between short and feature was still forty five minutes. Um, okay, might be. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but it's almost as though IMDb has decided that Sherlock Junior is the cutoff <laughs> between short and feature. You know what I mean? It's like they what if it's shorter than a Sherlock Jr., it's a short. If it's longer than a Sherlock Jr., it's a feature. It's almost like they made that decision just to keep Sherlock Jr., you know, in eligibility for the list. It, that's what it feels like to me anyway. I, I love the idea that Wolf of Wall Street is precisely four Sherlock Juniors long. Um but um <laughs> I do uh, the, the, just to, to kind of briefly kind of mention that actually because you you did point this out before we went on the air. This is the shortest movie on the list. Um, so like this is the kind of lower threshold. This is the shortest movie that we'll be covering on the podcast at just forty four minutes, which is remarkable. It's also as you point out the second oldest. The only older movie on the list is The Kid, um, as well. Um, all right, yep. then, and for myself, yep. yes, absolutely. There should be plenty more silent movies on there. I'd love to see more diversity in the range of silent movies on there. I'd like to see more Howard Lloyd on there. I'd like to see more German expressionism on there because I think Sunrise dropped off, Metropolis yeah. is on there, but even then, but even things like Nosferatu and the Cabinet of Dr. Calgary and stuff like that, all were on and dropped off. So it's kind of a, you know, I am, again, this is one of those things we talked about Citizen Kane uh, a week ago. I'm not as hot on like 30s and 40s Hollywood as a lot of cinephiles are. Like silent movies are hmm. more fun for me, more interesting to look at, more visually interesting. Um, so I would love to see more movies like this. So yes, absolutely, this should be on the list uh, is, is what I would say to that. And then second question, 
And actually, I'm thrilled because I, I know that you have a list, which again, puts you in the rare annals of 250 guests who are actually going to be able to answer this question for me. Um, <laughs> most most people treat these questions with the contempt that they deserve. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on, I'm going to I'm gonna grab my list so that I can give you a precise <laughs> answer. <laughs> Listeners, Max actually oh, has wow. a list. He actually has a list. All right, so... <laughs> Hold on, hold on. I'm gonna. I, I I can't stand Rush Limbaugh, but I'm gonna do the Rush Limbaugh thing of crinkling the paper in front of the microphone, so that you can be assured that I have a list uh, here. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm calling. And you're it now. wondering where Sherlock Jr. is on it? Yeah, I'm calling oh. it now. Best, best podcast ever from Darren's point of view. Max, um, would uh, Sherlock Jr. be on your personal 250? Um. It's not only on my personal 250. It, it the last time I put my own top hundred films together. I put it at 51. Ooh, what's above it and below it, you mind me asking? Oh, just right next to it? To Let's give see. a sense of um, scale. Yeah, Lee Chong Dong's Poetry from 2011 is at 50, and Steven Spielberg's Jaws is at 52. Oh, that's a good... Yeah, nice. A, <laughs> yeah, it's. I, I try to have some diversity in this one. I even have, you know, some experimental films on there, like Hollis Frampton's Nostalgia and Bruce Conner's Cosmic Ray, so even some, like, teeny tiny shorts um, are on this list as well, so... Nice. All right, that's then, cool. so that's... That's a hard yes. So, Andrew, follow that. Um, would would Sherlock Jr. be on your own personal 250? Um, it's, I, I was thinking about this today because I was thinking about kind of problems I had with the movie. Are they kind of, are they really problems at all? Because I think I brought this up with the kid where there was a portion of the movie that didn't really belong, where there was like a... a a dream sequence, and it seemed like Charlie Chaplin had just decided, I want to do this scene, and I make movies, so I'll put it in my movie. And, <laughs> and, there, and there, 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 there's a long part of this movie, which um, one, one particular part especially, which seems to basically be um, uh, Keaton having fun and, and deciding kind of like, this is what I want to do. I make movies. I'm going to put it in my movie, um, and and I th I think we're 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 taught to think that that there that there's something kind of wrong with that. Like artists are told to kind of kill their darlings, and and like if it doesn't fit in the movie, don't put it in. Um, but sometimes 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 the the most memorable parts of movies are the are the are the bits that don't really belong or don't really. Uh, make sense or are in some way incongruous. Um, I totally agree. I've always hated the kill your darlings advice. I mean, yeah. if you've got a really good artist, like, no, give me just the darlings. You're a good artist. <laughs> I want to see what your darlings are. Yeah, like, 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 uh, we we did we did um, we did a lot of Twin Peaks. Um, was, we did a lot of Twin Peaks. And, oh my God, that is a one hundred percent darling show. Yeah, yeah I love there's, it. There's, uh, like, like. So there'll be like a whole scene where they're where they're eating these baguettes and really enjoying the baguettes and talking about the baguettes and um and where 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 you're thinking like oh this is gonna come back in the in the third act but no <laughs> to put this in context for listeners Andrew was speed watching Twin Peaks before he recorded so he was probably a bit more urgent to get to the to get to the baguette back. As it were, like a little less willing to savor the sweet baguette eating. Um, um, I can't fast forward um, to this. They're eating baguettes. 
yeah. No, but the um I'm 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 gonna be a bit agnostic um on whether on whether it's my own list because I, I didn't really kind of um settle. Like I because I, I, I was I, I was I was talking to uh Petrina and I was kind of saying initially that um I was like kind of criticizing the movie. I was saying um she was asking me what I thought of it. And it occurred to me that maybe I just think this. I have this idea about like kill your darlings and 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 that the movie doesn't really kind of make sense because I've kind of um heard it. But then I thought like there there there's so many cases where you can kind of push back from that advice and um uh, to create a better movie. So I'm I'm not I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it's on on on, on my 250. I'm still kind of wrestling with it. Keaton was really really good though at killing off his non-darlings. Uh, I mean, if you when you hear reports of like the original rough cut running times of something like the general, the general was like thirty or forty minutes longer than its than its current length, and he just he went through it. Maybe it was test screenings. What I don't remember exactly what the process was, but he was just gleefully cutting stuff out of it, and I imagine he did that on most of his movies. And so I, I don't know. I kind of love that. Like I trust his darlings because he. Right he cut so much that whatever he left in there must be good or at least important to him. Yeah. What I would actually kind of, I was going to ask Andrew this in terms of like the, the Sherlock Jr. The, like you mentioned that the kind of kill your darlings aspect, the bits that are incongruous. What are the bits that are congruous comparatively is what I'm wondering when we watch Sherlock Jr. Uh, because like so much <laughs> of the movie is kind of structured to like mirror itself. Yeah, I, I, I suppose the, the part, Parts of the movie based in reality, but that's like that's about literally but, half. So it's very much it's very much like it's half, half yeah, darling, half nonsense. Yeah, it's 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 yeah, it's a funny one because they they I I suppose it it doesn't it probably wouldn't really spoil the movie to say that a large part of it takes place in a dream sequence. Yeah, um, and. And that's some, like, some, not like some... the kid's dream sequence, where the kid's dream sequence is about eight minutes long. The, the dream sequence here is about twenty-two minutes of a forty-four-minute film. Yeah, and so, so, some of some of it as well. Um, his kind of some of it isn't very. Uh, some of it is plot-driven, and some of it isn't. <laughs> um, like, like as, as in, it would be. It, yeah. it's, it's kind of. Um, it's not a problem. Um, it's not even it's it's not even necessarily incongruous to have a, a dream sequence, but the, but there 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 are parts of that sequence that that's, that that don't really kind of um, uh, take us any further in the plot. And if you wanted to, you could kind of um, uh, criticize them for it, or you could celebrate them for it. Um, so yeah, I'm not I'm not I'm I'm not sure where I'm landing yet with that. But um, but how about yourself, Darren? I will probably be agnostic on this point, actually, um, in that I really like it. I like it a lot. I love it a lot. But I think that if I were probably going to pick some movies myself, I'd probably go with, uh, I would, sorry, Max, I'd probably go with some Chaplin, um, just myself, because I'm a, I'm a sweet <laughs> sentimentalist. I'm Again, a... there's a 
there's a bunch of terrific chaplain. I mean, like again, City Lights, Modern Times. There's some great chaplain and a bunch of his early shorts. He's every bit as balletic as Keaton, and there doesn't seem to be so much over sentimentalization um, in some of his earlier stuff. But then again, Keaton's early shorts, like One Week, for instance, are still like some of the funniest stuff I've ever seen in my life. Uh, in fact, maybe maybe the loudest I've ever laughed was the first time I watched Keaton's One Week from 1920. Because uh, I just wasn't ready for how how good it was going to be. Please watch one week; it's really good. Um, yes, and it's out of copyright, so it'll be in our show notes as well. Much like this movie as well is exactly. out of copyright, so we'll actually be able to include the link to watch this movie in our show notes. Um, to jump ahead yes. to the th- which link will we choose? There are so though? many. That's the, yeah, that's the question. Yeah. There are so many, yeah. My personal, my personal favorite is I hope you'll find the one with the, uh, oh, what's the name of the orchestra? Sheldon Brown wrote the music for the, oh, the Clubfoot Orchestra is what it's called. Um, it's a, it's a very loopy, silly score. Um, but when Kino did their like new Blu-ray release on it, they put a different score on it. I just hate the, I'm very particular about silent movie scores. I don't know why. Like I plant on a score and I say, this is the one don't change it. So like Richard Einhorn's voices of light for the passion of Joan of Arc. It's like, I can't imagine hearing this with any different music. And even though I didn't like the score very much the first time I saw Sherlock Jr. Now it's like, no, this is the perfect, crazy, loopy, silly score. Uh, and, and it, it just, I don't know, it just matches the energy of the film excellently. So if you, I think there actually is, uh, a YouTube copy, um, with, with that score on it. So if you can link that, that'd be my personal pick, but what score did you guys watch? Uh, it we with? watched it on the Laurel and Hardy. I watched it on the Laurel and Hardy channel. Um, because of course I did. I, um, <laughs> it's like silent film movie <laughs> brands. It's, it's all there. So I, think I don't I might I think... have watched a different all right. one. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not certain. It might've, it might've been the Laurel and Hardy one. Um, I I started watching one version and the frame wasn't kind of properly positioned. And um, uh, Max, I didn't like the the score in the first one I was listening to. And the, the, the first one I was listening to was I had chosen it for the score because it said kind of like... Um, with a live kind of piano accompaniment. Oh, well, yeah, the one the one I love, this the Clubfoot Orchestra, is not piano. Like, it was yours just solo piano? Right. This is like a very loopy jazz combo. Uh, and I don't know, it's, it's sort of perfect for the energy of the movie. That it's it's almost more energetic than the movie, and I, I absolutely adore it. So so if you have a chance to watch it again sometime, it's only 45 minutes long. I, I love the Clubfoot Orchestra score, because I really do. I think a score can make or break a movie. And a silent movie that is, and and so yeah, I've got my I've got my favorites, and I <laughs> I insist upon them most of the time when I when I'm screening them for people. Perfect, and I would yes. Yeah, so if, if for my own personal two fifty, I would probably go with a Chaplin or some Murnau or some sort of German expressionism. Um, this is pretty great though, um, and I mean yeah. And this brings us to the third question. So Max, if and I guess we've already answered this, but if listeners have not already <laughs> watched, we have to ask technically to pro ask. forma. If listeners have not watched <laughs> yeah. Sherlock. Junior, would you recommend that they pause the podcast, go to the show notes, find a version of the movie with the music that we have available in the public domain <laughs> yeah. and enjoy it at their leisure? Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, watch this. I mean, even if you watch it with a score I don't like, it's still a fantastic film. Uh, yeah, of course, watch this movie. It's it's like I said, I, I show this to students who have never seen a silent movie before and they walk away saying that uh, they want to explore it more and they were surprised at how funny it was. So I don't know. I I. I think this is one of the perfect entries to silent cinema. Uh, again, there are plenty of other ones. Uh, Harold Lloyd's Safety Last, for instance, is another great entry point. But uh, Sherlock Jr. is perfect because yeah. it's short. Um, and Andrew, what about yourself? Absolutely. 
yeah. this movie is hilarious and delightful. Um, Keaton is incredible um, in this, and um, yeah, no, it, and it, and it's forty five minutes long. <laughs> Yeah. It's yeah. like less than 45 minutes long. It's, it's l- as it's long as you need to be a feature. Which it's is like 44. I think actually we have yeah, we now have surpassed a, it. I think we have yeah, we have officially talked for longer than 45 <laughs> minutes now and we haven't even talked about the film um, yet, so yeah, perfect. And and I would absolutely recommend as well and it is dazzling to look at. It is like awe-inspiring when you see it. The again, the physical comedy involved, but even that the kind of trickery that's going on there as well, like the combination of Keaton's vaudeville techniques and the idea that now we have a new medium we're playing with and we can do tr- tricks in camera, we can do maths, we can do double exposure. Um there's a really excellent video I'm going to link in the show notes uh from David P. Pearson where he goes through like the craft and technique that was used to pull off some of those stunts and it's yeah it's it's, i haven't seen this one i guess i should look (laughs) into it i wrote a paper in grad school where i tried to just dissect the film stunt by stunt um and i i went back and you know found that and it was trying to figure out if there was any you know any good work in it that i could that i could bring to this podcast today but i didn't i i didn't run into this video so uh, so now i have my homework as soon as we're done recording <laughs> um, and it's grand, it's it's only 20 minutes long so it's only half as long as the film so yes uh, that will also be in the show everything notes well. everything seems longer after this movie <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's, it's um, true. all right then with that in mind then we'll segue neatly into the spoiler zone So, Max, what is Sherlock Jr. about for you? Well, when you when you look at its place in in like the history of film theory, you run into a whole bunch of like psychoanalytic critics, people like, I don't know, um, Eberwein, uh, who wrote this great book called Film and the Dream Screen, or like Jean-Louis Baudry, who was talking about like uh, psychoanalysis and the apparatus, or even maybe even back to like a, a non-film scholar like Suzanne K. Langer. They're all thinking about the relationship between film and dream and how what's going on when you sit in the dark immobilized to just watch pictures flicker on the screen in front of you is exactly the mode of vision and experience that a dream is like the same sort of thing is happening. You're even, you're even, you know, you know, like you're, 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 you're bathed in darkness and you're just allowing these images that, that you don't even feel like you've invented to, to enter you. And I just love that one of the first movies to really think about the intersection between film and dream and certainly to think about it so well is Sherlock Jr. And so, yeah, everybody who analyzes this film loves to analyze the moment where he goes and leaps up into the screen. It's the most written about part of it. And hopefully we'll spend our requisite time talking about that. But for me, it's actually one of the least funny parts of the movie. It's, it's definitely really important thematically because well, here's here's the thematic link I see for that one, because you sort of alluded to it already, that he was this vaudeville act from the age of a, like a toddler, um, you know, he had this handle on his back and his father would throw him all over the stage and into the audience. They almost got arrested for child abuse a few times, um, but were able to like get out of it. Uh, this the, the three Keatons, his father, Joe Keaton, plays the girlfriend's father in the movie. So he's even referencing his family's like history in this. So we start out our first act here 
uh, where the pearls get stolen and, you know, and so on. And he tries to shadow your man closely and all of the hilariousness that happens there. Uh, the, the spot where he gets hit with the spout of water and breaks his neck. Maybe we'll talk about that more later. Um, and so on. All of that is just straightforward stage stunts, stuff, stuff that could be done on stage or, you know, if you had a big enough stage. But then he falls asleep while he's showing the film and there's this marvelous ghostly double ex double exposure as he stands up and to make it a joke he takes his ghost hat off the wall which is still hilarious to me <laughs> didn't need to take the hat off the wall but it's the most perfect comic grace note um and he you know he puts the ghost hat on he goes down into the into the theater and then he you know leaps up into the screen they throw him out of the screen he leaps back up into the screen uh, and at this moment, the film begins to cut. It cuts between, I don't know, eight or 12 different blank locations. And every time it cuts, Keaton is in the same spot on the screen. And he claimed in various interviews that he had to use surveyor's equipment so that he could get himself at the same spot on the, you know, in the screen each time. It's doubtful that he actually needed surveying equipment. Uh, in other interviews, he said it was a, a trick that he did in Seven Chances where he used the surveying equipment. So I'm thinking that toward the end of his life, his memory got a little bit fuzzy as it would for anybody. Uh, especially if you make so many movies. I mean, in the twenties, he made what? Like two dozen shorts and a dozen features. It's, it's crazy how much he made in that decade. But anyway. So, you know, they, they measure this precisely so that he's at the same spot on the screen every time as it changes from like a lion's den to a snowy outside to a railroad track back to the garden. And he, you know, he falls over the, the, the little bench there. At this moment, it's, it's, he's almost making a kind of commentary of look at how different film is from theater. If I were a real theatrical person in a movie and the movie started cutting, it would be catastrophic, right? I, I, and if like, if I was still there across each cut, like if this was really taking place on stage that all the props were instantaneously changing and the actor was still in the same place it would be catastrophic that we you know we couldn't survive it uh that would be lying suddenly and so on but then it's as if the, the film then enters the dream film uh and there's no longer the the mise on a beam there's no longer the picture and picture it the 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 camera dollies up into into the screen and at that moment, he's also, he's almost saying, okay, I know I started in theater. I started in vaudeville and look at how different vaudeville is from cinema. But now I'm going to show you that I have mastered cinema and I'm going to use every single trick effect that is available. And I'm even going to maybe invent some new ones and I'm going to prove how much maybe better or at least more flexible cinema is to create these kind of, I don't know, fantastical effects than theater ever could be. So it's even almost autobiographical. He said, I, you know, I started in, in vaudeville. I have now moved to cinema. Let me prove to you how good I am at all of the means of cinema. So that's the sort of like film theory angle or, uh, you know, that, that you can approach it with. But to be honest, for me, and I realize this is a long way around to the answer, it's just a series of the best jokes ever put into a movie. I, I, I don't know how else to say it. Like all the stuff with him riding on the handlebars and almost dying a hundred times. Like it's just perfect physical comedy when he grabs onto that like train bar or whatever and, you know, and swings down into the backseat of the car. Uh, you know, when the, when the, the, the flow of water from the water tower hits him and throws him down onto the rail, uh, fracturing his neck. Uh, that, which he didn't realize he, for nine years. 
He didn't re- actually. I've I've seen it reported as thirteen years or even twenty five years Jeez, in other sources. Okay, yeah, wow. yeah, but yeah, he had blinding headaches for a couple of weeks. Didn't realize he had fractured a vertebra, and then later a physical. The doctor said, "When did you break your neck?" He's like, "I wasn't aware that I had broken my neck." He's like, "Well, we've got a badly heal- healed fracture here. When did that happen?" And he thought back, and he's like, "It must have been when I fell on right onto the railroad rail onto the rail in Sherlock Jr." And so yeah, and the shot runs about forty seconds. There's no cut. He gets up. He runs off. He finishes the shot. Holy crap. I mean, who? I mean, uh, who can do something like that? And so just his his absolute devotion to his craft, not only the vaudevillian parts, but also to constantly inventing new cinematic means uh, to create special effects and in the service of comedy. And you know what else I love about this when I show it? to students sometimes it's not even that stuff that they find funny usually they're too sort of in awe of that to actually laugh it's the little tiny subtle stuff that is the really funny stuff and i love how he balances that like he can give you this huge car chase with exploding 13 balls and all of that uh but then what students really really laugh at is when he's looking at the movie at the end to figure out how he should treat his girlfriend you know and he gives her the little peck because they kiss on screen but then as soon as it cuts to the guy holding the babies, it hasn't even cut back to Keaton yet. And the students are just just busting out laughing because they like we get the joke. Like he he doesn't know how to do this. He's this hapless boy who doesn't understand sex. That joke will always play. It's a hilarious joke. Or or the, the title card. He even allowed title cards to upstage him sometimes. Like uh, by the next day, the, the, the mastermind had completely solved the mystery with the exception of locating the pearls or finding the thief. That always gets a huge laugh. It's it that will always be funny. And and so yeah, for me, it the proof is in the fact that it's funny. The proof isn't in I mean, again, I love all the film theory part. I loved thinking about the reflexivity, but that is not the proof of why this is a great movie. The proof is that the gags are inventive and they still make people laugh. That's why it's great. That's it's what it the, is for me. It's all the different layers of humor as well. Like like you mentioned how it's not just kind of like the slapstick kind of pratfalls. It that it, that is some of the more subtle stuff as well. Like like one one joke that I really enjoyed was the the one looking for her lost dollar. He's like, describe it. Describe it. <laughs> describe it is such a great line. And yeah. well, and and of course the comedy of repetition that when the old lady comes back, he does the same gestures to her. Right? Oh, it's it's this wide. It's this tall. It's got a <laughs> flapping eagle on it. Uh, you know, <laughs> he understood comedy. What can I say? Like he just he got it. Yeah. Um. What I want to ask, actually, just to, again, to bring us back to the kind of film theory stuff, it's interesting yeah. that um, historically, according to, to what I could find here, Sherlock Jr. was not the biggest hit of kind of Keaton's career. It was one of his most underwhelming or underperforming movies of the 20s. I think it was second only to The Three Ages, which was a parody, again, to bring it all back to uh, W.D. Griffith, a parody of Intolerance um, as well. But, I'm um, glad you're mentioning the notion of parody because that's because this is that's really important to his early work too. But sorry, go ahead. <laughs> um, oh, oh, we'll, we'll come back to that stuff because again, there's some yeah. stuff in Sherlock Jr. that's very specifically like like the movies aged remarkably well, but it's also very much a movie from the mid 1920s. Um, but the interesting thing about it is that Keaton Keaton himself noted that like 
even if it wasn't his biggest hit financially or critically where it got mixed reviews and audiences seemed like they weren't sure what to make of it he noted that every cameraman and every director in town went to see it and absolutely loved it like trying to figure out how he did it and I if you hadn't if, like, said that quote i would have said that quote because th- that was in his interview in the parades gone by i think with uh, kevin brownlow but yeah i mean he was he was still boasting about that toward the end of his life that yeah every cameraman in the business went out to watch this film to try to figure out how i did it and uh, and and so i do that with students too after we watch it uh, we'll go gag by gag and uh, in some cases and i'll be like do you know how he did it and there's such delight as these engineering minds try to figure it out and sometimes totally fail to figure it out like and just this is just one little quip like when i say when i mo- when i note to them okay so he blows up the other car the pursuing gangsters with the 13 ball the the rigged 13 ball when he blows up that car the car goes flying off the road and flips over behind this little dirt hill nobody when they watch it the first time questions that they did that stunt with a car but if you go back and watch it you don't even have to look all that closely it's a cardboard cutout of a car that they flip upside down and throw a bit of dust up like it's the most obvious fake car but you don't notice it the first time you watch the film or when he steps on the brakes a second later and they go flying off into the into the water there that when you see the car detach from the chassis and fall into the water that is a miniature but you don't notice it the first time you watch it. You just totally believe that every stunt is, you know, has really been done. And I, I mean, even, even now, everybody has such, you know, they scrutinize special effects so much. They want to see the strings, but somehow Keaton disarms you. You stop caring about where the strings are when you watch it the first time. You're just in a state of delight. Or at least that's, that's my experience showing it to students. And that just makes me so happy. Maybe, I don't know, is it kind of nostalgic, but kind of uh, watching movies now with kind of like all the technology that they, sorry, I sound like an old man, but it, <laughs> it, it, it doesn't have the same effect. Like, I, because, like, when, when he does the, the dropkick, um, it, it made me think of like, oh yeah, there, there was, there was a time when drop kicks were really important in the nineties when I watched wrestling, and then I was thinking, kind of in movies, like who else has done that? And I thought of Sin City, um, mm. and the, the 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 drop kick that kind of Marv does into like a police car, um, and it got me to to like obviously they're very kind of like different scenes, but one of them is using um, like this kind of. Uh, kind of computer generated visual effects and uh, while while it, while it has an impact it doesn't have nearly the impact um that 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 gag has in 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 Sherlock Jr and the 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 the, the whole idea of kind of being able to do more with less um which is kind of incredible in 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 these older movies um I mean, everyone knows how much I like stop motion in in, in, <laughs> in kind in, of eighties action movies. Yeah, uh, obligatory yeah. RoboCop reference to get us, get <laughs> exactly. us there. Uh, yeah, which yeah. I was wondering how we do but this even, week. Even in horror movies, like the the, the like the, the thing, the, for example, like uh, stuff like the thing, the, um, that kind of the this. Anyway, sorry, that's a bit of a tangent, but no, no, I, I, I just kind of. I don't think it's out. a tangent at all. Like the thing has the simply the best like practical creature work ever put mm. in a movie, and 
Keaton was was always the guy who I mean he knew how to do like if you watch the Playhouse and his like multiple exposures in the Playhouse so that he can be every single person on stage uh it, it, like he would invent camera effects that nobody else had invented yet in, at least in that case and he used these effects very very cleverly in a way where it, even now it's kind of hard to tell where the effect starts and stops and but he still had this incredible reverence for doing things for real if you could do them for real and and that's the same sort of thing that underpins carpenter's approach to the thing at least it seems to me that we believe it because there's a really a creature there in the room that they actually filmed like there's real like you know well fake blood and guts but it's a real object in the room and it's the same thing with like the the, you can touch it yeah yeah you can touch it exactly it's the the same thing in in uh sherlock jr where he that that marvelous 17 second long shot where he does those three um pool shots in a row uh, and, and manages to sink a ball on every shot, sometimes more than one, and get at least one ball really close to the 13, but not quite hit it on each one. And I mean, he went, Clyde Bruckman, who was his assistant director and a, a gag writer, they were trying to set it up and it just wasn't working. He's like, Keaton, I don't think this can be done. And apparently he got furious and said, it absolutely can be, be done. Just give me 15 minutes with those goddamn little balls. And he threw everybody else out of the room figured out how to do it, taught himself how to do it. Apparently he was already a pretty skilled pool player, taught himself how to do it. And then they shot it and it's real. You're seeing him do the trick shots. And I just love his reverence for really doing it. If it was possible to do it. Apparently he used talcum powder was one of the things as well to figure out how the balls moved. To trace oh, nice. Which is nice. Uh, yeah. So lightly dusted there. Sorry. We're killing a little bit of the magic here. Um, no, I- no, no, stop. No, we're not. We're not though. <laughs> we could have told the audience the entire plot of Sherlock Jr. But until you've seen it, nothing is a spoiler until you've actually seen how he did it. If you, until you've seen the event of him doing it, th- none of the plots a spoiler. In in my opinion, anyway, yeah, because yeah. I I don't know, you can't um, spoil that just through a verbal description. Yeah. No, what I was gonna um, say was actually just to bring it back to kind of what we were talking about there, and it's kind of the idea that its reputation has grown in years, and that like maybe the the reaction of kind of like people who loved film at the time was to kind of warm towards it, and kind of like the audiences weren't were maybe not re- you know again I hate the cliche of audiences weren't ready for it yet, but it was very much like you're watching it like the the discussion of it is like. A, to hear some critics describe it, it's almost like audiences didn't know whether they should laugh at it or be try to figure out how it works. There was that kind of push and pull because exactly it was so right. at that time you didn't have that level of spectacle. Um, and I think it's it's interesting. We've talked a bit about Chaplin and Chaplin as the point of comparison for kind of Keaton and stuff like that. The cliche of Keaton as the 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 head to Chaplin's heart, you know, uh, Chaplin's sentimentality. Mm. Whereas Keaton, the great stony face, is how he was known. I think, like when they advertised uh, Sherlock Junior, and I love this from the poster. Only Buster Keaton could keep a straight face at Sherlock Junior. <laughs> but like, is, <laughs> how, like as somebody as somebody who kind of loves Buster Keaton, how how do you feel about that? Is that an unfair characterization of Keaton? Is it what his strength? Is it a simplification? What what do you make of it? What do you think? Is 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 what unfair? Is is anything oh, that you just said of, unfair? Yeah, or the kind of cliche of kind of Keaton as the kind of like the artist or the, the person who's more head than heart, as it were. It's kind of like more craft driven, perhaps, or more kind of. Is part I, of I, your. Is, go ahead. Is, go ahead. Is part of your point the, of 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 kind of breaking too many conventions? Like the, oh no no, and, no and, 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 just and in terms the, of it, the audience not being. 
able to keep up at the time and that sort of stuff. Well, yeah, kind of like that, like that sort of thing. But also even the kind of the discussion of kind of Keaton as maybe the reason why he doesn't have the same popularity as uh, Chaplin does. Like in the, you mentioned the fact that all four, all five of Chaplin's big 20s comedies are on the list and are, are climbing as a result and stuff like that. And kind of the, you mentioned this idea of nostalgia in your paper, but like the juxtaposition of, say, Keaton with that, where like the cliche of Keaton as... I don't want to say colder because he's hilarious. The, the movie's absolutely hilarious. But as maybe an artist whose work is, I, I don't like using the word intellectual, but a bit more kind of craft focused, if that makes sense, rather than sentimental. Would that okay, be, I, I follow what you're saying now. Yeah, it, it took me a second to, to sort yeah. of pick up what you were laying down there. I, I don't mind the description of him as being more craft focused or more unsentimental because, I mean, he, he famously said once that, I, I think this is the quote, the, the world is too serious for farce comedy. That he he like he believed that and this, there's the other cliche right comedy is a serious business but he I mean as as many times as he was forced to write gags for say uh, the Marx Brothers or Red Skelton later in his career he just felt that, the, that those performers just didn't have the discipline that he had and he I think he's right about that I think they didn't have the discipline I, now trust me I love me a Marx Brothers movie you know Duck Soup Night at the Opera I mean they're they're fantastic but you can tell that the that the comedy isn't as disciplined it's not as worked out it's not as rigorous as what as what Keaton was doing um you can you can watch Keaton's films in slow motion and really appreciate the again the 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 balletic approach to to each pratfall that like you know you listen to like uh, a great violinist like Joshua Bell or Itzhak Perlman play a violin concerto and you get a sense that they're not just rushing from note to note that every note is being given its own little life and its own little character and it's the same thing with Keaton every pratfall every gag is being given its own life and its own character he he really really cared and I think that if it seems like there is a paucity of affect if there's a paucity of obvious emotion uh here whereas whereas Chaplin's emotions were much more to the fore if it seems like that for Keaton it's only because that's just how he learned to be funny when he was a kid right whenever he broke and started laughing like the joke stopped working also one of the one of the other explanations for the great stone face was that when he was really concentrating on a gag and making making it right that's just what his face did and so he sort of leaned into that persona um Apparently, off off screen, um, he had one of the handsomest smiles in Hollywood history, uh, and the the you know the girls would swoon for him whenever whenever he would flash those pearly whites because he never did it on screen, uh, or or so rarely did it on screen uh, anyway. And I don't know. I I love the focus. I love the determination, and I love that he allows us to supply our own emotions. It's like at the end of Ruben Mamoulian's Queen Queen Christina where he directed Garbo to give the most blank performance as possible, just you know, no emotion on her face at all for the last shot of Queen Christina. It, the logic being that the audience, having already seen the rest of the film, will put whatever emotion on that face that they deem should be there at that moment. And so, and so for every viewer, the film will end a little bit differently based on their experience of the rest of the movie. And I kind of feel like that's true for Keaton, too. Based on how we think about the universe and how we think of the story up to that point, we will put that emotion on his face. And I love that he gives us the room to do that. Whereas a lot of these other performers, um, Chaplin, Langdon, to a great extent just didn't give us the room to do that. But Keaton gives us the room to do that. And that's why, for me, his his work is still so accessible to so many people. Yeah. Um, 
Actually, sorry, just very quickly, because I came across this in the notes, um, and a, a story that I absolutely love that perhaps kind of ties into this idea of Keaton as a technician or somebody who's interested in the form and the craft and the construction of film in particular. Apparently, he was initially not very interested in cinema, uh, as a, like he wasn't as an audience member particularly interested in the medium or the form. But apparently, when he stepped onto a film set in 1917 with uh, Roscoe Fatty Arbuckles, a comic film corporation, we'll probably talk about uh, Arbuckle in a little while, uh, but he was so intrigued by the camera, the actual physical camera the object that he asked to take one home with him that night and apparently he took it apart examined every bit of it put it back together and brought it back intact in the morning and apparently like that that feels almost again i don't know if that's true it, it feels like a bit of myth making but it, it feels very much like a kind of like when you watch yeah, bogdanovich here, repeats yeah. that in, in um what Second. is it the great buster celebration bogdanovich tells that that same that same um you know quip uh, and he says that Arbuckle was furious <laughs> that he had taken the camera apart uh, without asking uh, permission. But this is also one of the great tragedies of Keaton's career is that when sound came in, he was so interested in the gadgetry that he was ready to experiment with sound and figure out new ways to make gags with sound. But MGM just put the kibosh on that. You know, the, the worst mistake of my career, he called it, going to MGM, which I realize is, you know, five years after Sherlock Jr., so not especially germane to this discussion. But yeah, he really loved invention. And I, I just love that about him. It wasn't that quote from Chaplin that they'll ruin you helping you. No, I, I was going to say that that's that's um, sense of invention um, from Keaton. You really get that from this movie. Because kind of as the the movie um, within the movie starts to play it's kind of like a convention that you're almost familiar with it's the kind of play within the play but then him entering and then it changing like it 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 goes it it's it's so incredibly inventive that it, that, that 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 kind of um you know marks him out um and it it, it i mean do is that is this is this kind of the best encapsulation of Keaton as the the inventive uh, filmmaker? I, guess? I think so. I think so for sure. Yeah, I mean there 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 are you know bigger and you know more colossal gags in other places. You know the hurricane <laughs> and steamboat bill, the rock slide in Seven Chances. But as a as an inventor of trick effects, yeah, I think this is his high water mark. In fact, I'm not even sure what else would rival it. Maybe only the Playhouse. And again, like the, the the awareness of kind of form and function, like the use of framing and stuff like that and the awareness of the frame and how the frame works in gags. Like, again, I was watching this and I just jotted down in my notes, Wes Anderson is a big Sherlock Jr. fan. Because, um, like, I mean, there, there's that little bit where, like, the, where he's introduced reading the How to Be a Detective book, which is like something you would see in a Wes Anderson movie. Oh. But I was thinking, That's but, so perfect. I never thought of that before. I love yeah. that connection. Keep going. That's but, great. But, like, but like more than that, even the way that he uses the frame and movement in the frame where he constantly seems to move from left to right and from back to front, but never like diagonally, never at an odd angle. Um, like the hmm. sequence on top of the train where he's literally just kind of running across the screen, staying in shot as the train moves and stuff like that, which is a very Wes Anderson bit of framing and composition. Yes, where Wes is. Anderson will have characters like literally run out one side of the frame and run back up the <laughs> other one. And he does it like consistently. The film is like designed in such a way. And I think you mentioned this. It's like, it's Keaton being trapped in a movie, even even before he's dreaming, because that sequence with the train is before he's dreaming. Like the sequence where he's following um, the the Sheik, who again, n- nice little reference to kind of 1920s movies. But even there, moving. Oh, that's like, a Valentino right. reference. Yeah, is that uh, supposed to be a, a Valentino reference? reference? I never put that together it, before. 
it's apparently a spoof of a parody of the Valentino reference. Oh. Because <laughs> um, there's another, there's a, I think it's called Dreaming the Sheik or Remembering the Sheik, which is a, about a, a projectionist who dreams he's in a Rudolph Valentino movie. And it also stars, um, what's his name? The other actor, Ward. Um, so like apparently this was Keaton spoofing a spoof of another film. Uh, you did better you- research than I did. Thank you. Yeah, Ward <laughs> Crane. I didn't realize that he was a known quantity already and that people would recognize him from something else. That's so cool. Yeah, well, That's I mean, so cool. Even, even the sequence, and again, like so much of this movie, you watch it and you're like, that gag was hilarious when I saw it in Airplane 60 years after it was made. Like the sequence where he's getting dressed and prepared and he's kind of suiting up and it looks like he's standing in front of a mirror and then he just steps through it, um, which is again, it was a, like the first time I saw that gag was in Airplane and it killed. And I was like, this is a movie from 1924. Um, it's astounding. But like that whole sequence is parodying, is it Mystery of the Leaping Frisch, which was itself a Sherlock Holmes parody starring Douglas Fairbanks as Coke Any Day. Um, a, a similarly drug addicted Victorian detective. Um, wow. Okay. So cool that Fairbanks is in the mix now too, uh, because because he did a he did a ton of important stunt work. Also, I mean, like he was he was so committed to his craft too. Oh, that's great. Well, and of course, walking through the mirror is sort of like walking up into the film screen too. Yeah. Like the, those those two jokes kind of rhyme um, yeah. with each other. That's great. Yeah, well, I mean, that sequence where he opens the safe door and steps outside is, like, it's literally a gag taken from the mystery of the leaping fish. Again, oh, it's, wow. it's how much how much of it's kind of conversational, because you mentioned, like, that's the real sense of watching it, is Keaton being like, I was a vaudeville star, and I understand how vaudeville works, but I also understand how cinema works, and even more than, like, anybody else at the time, it's just, it's remarkable. Um, It's kind of breathtaking, just kind of watching that. And yeah, just the, the awareness of the fact that his character seems like the, the central tension is he's a character trapped in a movie and then he becomes a character playing in a movie. And the fact that it relies on an audience in the 1920s, like, you know, postmodernism, I, I like, again, you, you and Andrew are probably better placed than I am to talk about this, but like postmodernism as a school and as a discipline wasn't really like you, you did the word even exist in 1924? No, of course not. I mean, yeah. like it's, it's invented in what the seventies to describe yeah. what, what the very late sixties, Maybe, uh, you know, no, of course it didn't exist in the, as far as I know, anyway, it didn't, it didn't exist in the 1920s. And, the, but the, yeah, this is, this is, uh, this is a film that's what we, what we say, avant la lettre, uh, like if there ever were one, um, for, I mean, cause it's, it even sort of beats surrealism to the punch. Cause you look at like the great films of, of surrealism, you get like what Rene Claire's Entracte, that also comes out in 24. But then you get Dali and Buñuel with Anshin uh, Andalou and Lodge Door at the end of the decade. So, you know, he's. I, I always like to think of comedy as being a trailblazer because comedy figures out where the limits are and transgresses them to make you laugh. And that often happens before artists transgress them to make you think. Uh, or, sorry, not artists, because obviously comedians are artists, but like the more serious artists, uh, quote unquote transgress them to make you think um i i don't know i that's that's another aside but yeah I, keaton got there first in, in a lot of ways yeah um it, it's it's kind of dazzling to watch and again as, as somebody who like watched the comedies that have been influenced by this going back and seeing it it's just just dazzling just dizzy well, and, um, and not just comedies it, not just comedies it's it, is it just john wick two and three or is it all three john wick movies that have a clip from a buster keaton movie play at the beginning 
of the movies. Yeah, it's 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 the second and third one they do. They have it projected yeah. on a wall in New York City, and it's playing on a television in, in number three as well. So, and again, that, that's that history of kind of stunt work, because the idea is that yeah. like, stunt work has always been a part of what Hollywood is, and it's never treated as a serious art form. And it's like, actually, it is. Just like, well, arguably, jo- like comedy. Johnny Knoxville thing. plays tribute, too. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't know what you think about Johnny Knoxville, but he's <laughs> he's a huge Keaton fan, and for good reason. He's a big friend of the podcast. Yeah. Oh, cool. We've got Johnny Knoxville on next week talking about the general. Um, yeah. but, <laughs> he can have I, it. I was going to say how it's interesting because kind of um, stuntmen used to be the filmmakers, or the filmmakers were also stuntmen, like kind of Charlie Chaplin and, and, and Buster Keaton, and the 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 idea of that kind of like coming back, um, in in stuff like uh, John Wick or the, these these movies that are kind of vehicles for um, uh, stunts, I suppose, in in, in um, hugely popular movies that were 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 where there are kind of a a a showcase where we where where I suppose. Um, We've kind of gotten used to not thinking of them as as um, as important or um, like central to a movie since since the days of of silent uh, cinema. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Because I think you were mentioning like in terms of like plot and structure, like this this feels a lot looser. Because again, this is the twenties where you have like the silent film artists defining like how films are told and structured and stuff like that, like. You know, it's it's enough, arguably, for a short film or even for a long real film to be a series of misadventures linked around kind of a comedic premise and with a variety of set pieces. You don't necessarily need an overarching kind of clear three-act structure upon it. Um, and I think it's kind of interesting that we're maybe, like, the, the John Wick kind of example almost being kind of getting back to that, where it's like, the point of the John Wick movies is not the story of the John Wick movies, because his dog is killed. And that's a motivator. And that's the emotional depth of the movie. The point of the John Wick movie is to watch the artistry of like these actors or these stuntmen doing what they do really, really well in frame and like wondering about the mechanics of it. Again, it's that almost kind of awareness of of the form and the medium, which I I find interesting because we talk about like cinema and we talk about cinema as like suspension of disbelief. The idea that you should watch a movie and you should be absorbed by the movie completely and you should be invested in it emotionally and narratively. And I think I think that's a fair argument in a lot of cases. But I also think that, you know, that tends to devalue the idea of watching a movie and going, but wait, how did they actually do that? Like, how did they get that effect to happen? How did that craftsperson do that thing? How did that stuntman make it work in the shot? How did Charlie Chaplin jump through a body that was there a moment ago? And to actually think of it as, you know, not as, not as a, was it, uh, you know, uh, soap opera about like fictional people or events from the lives of like imaginary people but to think of it as a a kind of a piece of art or something that's constructed uh, I think that's that's remarkable I think I like that aspect of Sherlock Jr where so much of it is that so much of it's almost daring you to go well how would you do it because again I think I think Max kind of mentioned this it's the sitting down with the class afterwards and wanting to go that's how they did that effect or that's how they did that effect and like the fact that there's like so much of the kind of like 
silent era has been lost and so little of it is properly documented. Um, and so many of the accounts are kind of, as, as Max pointed out, post hoc and kind of subject to the cheating memory and things like that. Like there's a real sense in which we, we don't know how a lot of these stunts were actually physically done. And a lot of it is like detective work in the style of Sherlock Jr. Again, <laughs> I love that. I, I, well, I, yeah. mentioned, I mentioned there's a really great, David B. Pearson wrote a chapter for the Cambridge University Guide on this movie. And he like literally says, this is the production history of Sherlock Jr. as best I could construct it. Like from the references and inferences and like these brief asides. And he literally goes through kind of case by case. And it's like, well, you know, uh, the person on set when Keaton was driving the um, car, driving the sort of motorbike said that he crashed into a car. He crashed into a train. He ca- crashed into the director. That means Keaton couldn't possibly have been the director when filming that sequence. So that means Fatty Arbuckle was the director. Boom. We know the Fatty Arbuckle was there. And it's like, that's that's how, like, that's the level of in-depth you have to go to kind of reconstruct the, the, the behind-the-scenes stuff, which I kind of, I find interesting that there's still a mystery around it. Like, the magic... You know, it isn't just the illusion of the magic trick. It's the art of the magic trick, if that makes sense. I, I don't know. Yeah. And it, n- 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 even even if you don't kind of try to pick apart the um, the tricks and try to figure it out, it's it's being wowed by it. Yeah. Like, I, 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 I was just blown away by the uh, level crossing stunt. Uh, it, it was just, I, I was like... The bit with the train, I, I, is it? Yeah, I wanted to stand up and clap. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, it's it's just a you know it's a straightforward case of uh, either skipped frames or you know time lapse photography, uh, and you know and sp- or you know doing like like shoot, shooting it at a lot lot slower and then speeding up the film. He might have even he might have even done it backwards. I don't yeah. remember. I believe, is it backwards I, as I, well? believe, I believe it's this he is reversed the one where, it. Where, where where he goes from from the um, the. Um, uh, the 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 level level crossing from the roof. Oh, down, into the back seat of the oh, car. Oh, that one. I thought you, I thought you meant the one where he was on the handlebars yeah. and almost got hit at a level crossing by the train yeah. coming no. toward him. Okay. <laughs> yeah, with the one where he where he's yeah where he takes the he rides the gate down. I don't think there's any trickery there at all. I got I just think he rode <laughs> no. the gate down. <laughs> I was just thinking like <laughs> yeah that that it it's it's incredible that. Um, <laughs> like obviously he breaks his neck on this and you're you're like the 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 fact the fact the fact that there weren't that 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 he he wasn't like killed many many times making this movie uh, well not just this one i mean he he you know famously almost drowned doing the waterfall stunt in our hospitality uh that's the and there's a long list of you know near-death experiences <laughs> yeah, the steamboat bill sequence yeah of course the house front and steamboat bill that's quoted by everybody uh yeah yeah it's astonishing like, what, an inch an inch clearance either side i think or something like that it, which is it was stupidly small like you could have made that upstairs window a lot bigger and everybody still would have laughed and the house didn't have the house front didn't have to weigh two tons. Like you could have built it a lot lighter, and it's it's people still would have laughed. But that's just the commitment he had. He just went with it. I mean, the 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 story there is that the the cameraman filming it even looked away while he started cranking, which is crazy to me. Like, I, 
And I'm like the, the the again like my my favorite detail of that really potentially grim and disastrous and possibly having a much sadder ending story is that like in in hindsight Keaton said you know I probably shouldn't have done it that way but I just had an argument with the producer about whether or not we were doing it and I said we were doing it so we did it. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's that what? sounds that sounds like him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like what have I forced people to do to me? <laughs> like, well, well, why was I so? insistent that we do this thing that's now possibly going to kill me yeah. <laughs> and can I change my mind yeah. um, no I, I'm proud and arrogant I've made my point I can't back down now um, let's just get it over with um, but yeah no it's, it's absolutely dazzling and kind of stunning um, what about yourself Andrew anything kind of jumping out at you in terms of yeah the, 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 um, I loved the um, the stunt where he uh, jumps through the kind of um, hoop Yes, uh, with the with the lady disguise in it. That, yeah. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> how so did he do incredible. it? So how did he do it? How do you think he did it? Because I've never been able oh, to okay. track down de- a definitive answer to this, but I've got my guess. Do you know? I think Darren does. Well, okay. Does Darren I, actually know? Oh, that's I, great. Well, I have again. This is from Pearson again, putting it together. So I don't know if I actually have it, but you go first with right. what you think, and then I'll say what Pearson says. Okay, so if you run it frame by frame, <laughs> if you run it frame by frame, you can see, because he dives not just head first, but hands outstretched, like Superman po- pose, through it. And when his hands pierce the paper, the hat is not there in the center of the paper where it ought to be, which means that the dress wasn't in the dress form. It was probably, this is my guess anyway, it was probably tacked up somehow on the inside wall of that building, and he jumped into it before he jumped through the window and the uh, and and the paper hoop. That's my best guess for that one. It, does Pearson say a similar thing or something totally different? Oh, sorry. No, I was thinking of a different sequence where he jumps. I love that we were, at, we're talking about a movie where he, there are two sequences where Buster <laughs> jumps through a dress. Um, yeah, I don't know how he did that one. That's apparently like a classic. Oh, okay. Model. Yeah. Um, um, but the, the the one that I was thinking of was the sequence where it's um, what's her name? It's the Gillette. It's Gillette in disguise. Oh, oh, you're talking about when he jumps through the suitcase, Gillette's suitcase. Oh, yeah. Well, because he did this one live on, what was it, some Ed Sullivan variety show or whatever later on. So this is a totally theatrical trick. There's there's no no cinema tricks there. And to me, it seems pretty obvious that they just had a false door and they had the actor who plays Gillette up at an angle or, yeah, Yeah. like horizontal. Um, And then dropped him down. Yeah dropped him down but my the part i love about it is the magician style misdirection yeah. that happens there they swing him down into the dress he walks away from <laughs> the wall just slowly enough that they're able to close the doors to make it look like a solid wall yeah. and then he turns around like feeling on his back as if how in the world did someone just jump through me but what he's really doing when he feels around on his back is he's cinching the dress closed yeah. so like he's holding it closed so you don't notice that it was open uh and that's that's my favorite thing is that by drawing attention to, uh, to the fact to, the, to, to somehow by drawing attention to his back, he is he is still like on a further level tricking you. It's it's an amazing bit. It's an amazing bit. Uh, actually, Max, what about yourself? What would be your favorite stunt? Do you have a single favorite stunt in this movie? A single favorite stunt in this movie? Uh, <laughs> I, I hadn't even I hadn't even thought about answering. I mean, I feel like I've I've waxed rhapsodic about so many of them at this point. Um, the, the okay, I'm gonna go with something real small. If you if you go back and you watch when he okay, so he has he has the the pocket watch has just been stolen, 
and he just he's looking at uh his how to be a detective book which is still the funniest name of of a fake prop book how to be a detective like that's i read it like that in my my mind every time i see it on screen how to be a detective uh but anyway uh so he's reading that and it says uh search everybody look for clue so he he decides this is what he has to do immediately and go back and watch, frame by frame if you have to, go back and watch the balletic precision with which he stands up and just deftly takes one of his legs and uses it to push the footstool back underneath the couch and then, and then walks over. It is the, 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 the smallest, least important, most, I don't know, it's just a throwaway movement. He didn't need to do it, but he's constantly doing it. Like, or the moment where he picks up the dollar box of chocolates and he, like, he picks up the box with the price tag, like, hands the shop girl the price tag and is gone. There was, there's like three or four little moves there that again are just perfectly choreographed. It's, uh, it's like you're watching a piece of music. And so for me, it's the, the, the real brilliance is in all those little small moments where he, he didn't have to do any stunt work at all. He didn't have to practice it at all, but he obviously did, uh, because the rhythm is still there and it's there so well. Um, and that's because I, I, I can't pick another big one. We've already talked about the big ones. I got to pick a small one. <laughs> um, it is worth noting, actually, again, when you mentioned that How to Be a Detective book, um, the mustaches. I love the movie's repeated reference <laughs> to fake mustaches, where everybody so has a fake mustache. And um, by the way, is it um, that again, nice 1920s pun here. Um, the henchman, his Gillette, who's a gem who's ever ready, is a reference to the three biggest razor brands of the 1920s. Gillette, we obviously know, ever ready and gem are all, again... Who is ever ready in a bad scrape. So scrape is a joke on shaving, too. Thank you so much. I didn't know that. That's great. Um, But I love that he's always like, everybody has a fake mustache in it, even when they don't need to. It's amazing. It's such a delight. And again, you have this kind of this idea of kind of like theme of performance and stuff like that, again, not not to get too heavy into kind of like dissecting kind of theme and metaphor and stuff like that. But like, I like that even in even in those small moments, there's a sense of kind of performativity to it, where it's like, it's not just about imagining yourself in movies. It's about the way in which that imaginary movie world kind of spins outwards. So you have like him drawing the four dollars onto the price of the $1 box of chocolates, for example, in order to present himself as having spent more money than he has in order to impress her. The fact that he clearly wanders around with a fake mustache on in the middle of a day. And as you point out, even the fact that he takes his cues at the end from watching a movie as well. So it's not just that kind of the movies are inside his head. It's that, you know, you have this idea of kind of like myth-making almost in there, I think. In a you know what way. else I love about this? Since you were, you were mentioning the fake mustaches and the, the drawing <laughs> the four, it made me think of there is there is a real mystery in this movie like there's the mystery of who actually stole the watch which of course keaton's character doesn't solve at all (laughs) uh and in fact it is the last thing we see before he falls asleep and goes into the dream that the girlfriend has effortlessly she's taken five minutes gone to the pawn shop asked for the description and (laughs) figured out who it was that really stole the watch and so before we even see this whole dream sequence about how great of a detective he is the real good detective who's his girlfriend has already solved the case with, with, with by following one lead and that was it and so everything that we see in the dream is totally useless to resolving the plot as it were of the movie it it embodies uh, there i think it's in donald crafton's pie and chase it's a really 
really important article about like the history of silent film comedy. He says that there's this notion of like temporal waste when you're watching, uh, you know, a classic silent film comedy. The idea that so much of what happens on screen didn't need to happen at all. It was total excess. Mm. It was based on some sort of misunderstanding that went on for an hour and then finally it's resolved at the very end. And that, and that this notion of temporal waste the notion of all these things that didn't need to happen, but nevertheless did crazily happen. That's what provided the spine of so many silent movies. And this is a perfect example of that. She's already solved the case. <laughs> and then we have another half hour of movie of him having this magnificent dream sequence. I, I, I love that. For me, that might even be the funniest joke in the movie. <laughs> but, I mean, I think that's a result of how Keaton worked. Keaton's like philosophy was we get an ending, then we get a beginning. And we figure out the middle as we go. Like that was that's a, right. like that's that's how he structures the movie. And again, like yep. it, we sh- it it kind of it kind of tricks or teases the audience as well because starting this movie, there there's the kind of um, beginning sort of title card where where it has a, a proverb, and I think it's <laughs> it's like don't try to do two things at once and expect to do justice to both. So I'm anticipating this this movie to be some sort of like fable or like cautionary tale, and it just totally isn't. Like, um, I'll, 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 like, uh, um, I'm I'm sure Darren, you can make some argument as to why it is, but um, but yeah, it's 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 that interesting thing of 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 kind of um, you know, di- distract like. You feel like you're 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 going to maybe go on this kind of momentary um, tangent, and that that, that and <laughs> that that kind of takes over. Yeah. Like the, the, the kind of idea of uh, um, that you mentioned, Max, of the the uh, temporal waste. I guess if 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 I understand it right. Yeah, t- totally. And I and I I kind of love that you mentioned that proverb too, because it has always seemed to be the exact inversion of what's going on <laughs> in this movie because Keaton is proving that he's a master of everything in this film, right? He's proving that he's a master of knowing exactly where to put the camera, exactly how to do trick effects, exactly how to time a gag, exactly how to do physical stunts. Like he's proving that he is a master of all of these trades. Um, while he's making a story about a character who's a master of zero trades. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's great. Um, very quickly, actually, before we go, should we talk a little bit about the production of it? Because I think it was originally titled The Misfit. But apparently um, Keaton had hired um, Roscoe Arbuckle um, to direct it. Um, Arbuckle famously having been caught up in one of the great trials of the century in terms of Hollywood. And we'll include some links in the show notes. Um, I think Karina Longworth has actually done a really good uh, podcast on that trial that's really worth listening to. But after that trial, um, he was acquitted and the jury made a point of saying that they felt that he was innocent and that he was owed his good name and whatever. Uh, but obviously he was blacklisted and considered to be one of the first blacklisted um, actors in Hollywood. But apparently um, he'd given Keaton his start in the business. As I mentioned, it was like Roscoe Arbuckle's company was the company that Keaton first worked for. So Keaton wanted to repay him and asked him to come in as a director, or at least a co-director on this. But he is not credited on the finished film. And there's been a lot of debate about how much or how little of the film he did or didn't direct. And apparently the, according to Keaton, I believe the situation is that Arbuckle directed some of the start of the movie. So the bit towards the end of the movie because of how it was shot. Uh, but apparently there was some disagreements involving Catherine Maguire, um, uh, the actress who played the girl. 
Um, and apparently Arbuckle was not able to complete um, his work on the film. But it is worth noting that Keaton remained close to Arbuckle throughout his life. Uh, three or four years later, I believe he was the best man at Arbuckle's second wedding, for example. Uh-huh. Uh, which is so so, so there was no it wasn't as if there was bad blood or anything like that but it, it's been suggested that it was possibly the sequence in which uh the girl is abducted and the butler uh undoes his bow tie as if to threaten uh some sort of possible sexual assault was ne- not necessarily something that arbuckle was comfortable doing given the nature of the accusations against him at the time and perhaps some disagreement stemmed from that um it, it, it is a bit of an uncomfortable watch that the, um, well because but, it comes out of nowhere like it's it's the you know it's the really only point in the film where that level of menace is suggested which is rather strange well let's not let's not forget about that human shaped cage that the other detective is <laughs> hanging from the ceiling in fair, I, fair the point. first time i ever saw this movie i was legitimately frightened by that shot it was it was just it was so dark and i never expected to see it in a comedy yep. and then he's like oh no, there's no moment where you come back to rescue him. Yeah. <laughs> that is the cage in which he dies. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very good point. I hadn't thought about that character anymore after that. Very good point. Yeah. Keaton getting rescued there as he's lying in the river with the girl and like the poor other detectives like, please help me. I haven't eaten in three weeks. Um. Well, just take some solace in the fact that it's a film within a film, so it's doubly fiction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, all right, then. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about? Anything we haven't discussed already? Max, is there anything we've missed or anything you'd like to draw attention to or anything you think merits more attention or discussion? There are so many reflexive films in not just Hollywood history, but just movie history. But very rarely do you find a film where the 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 this idea of referencing cinema to say something about cinema actually uh, actually embodies the argument it's trying to make. I, I sometimes call these premise and proof movies. So if you watch something like Man with a Movie Camera, Man with a Movie Camera has this thesis that it's advancing, Veritov's Man with a Movie Camera has this thesis it's advancing about documentary and what documentary should be and what cinema should be as part of the Soviet Revolution and so on. But the film doesn't just make the claim, it embodies the claim. It does the thing that it's implicitly arguing. You could say that something like Singing in the Rain is is similar, though perhaps in the opposite direction. The argument in Singing in the Rain being that, uh, you know, Kathy Selden at the beginning um, says, if you've seen one, you've seen them all. So she has this disdainful opinion of silent movies. If you've seen one, you've seen them all. But the movie seems to be designed to refute that because all of the songs are recycled from other movies, uh, which is great. And, and it's, as, it's as though Donnan and, um, uh, and Kelly are trying to say, no, the Hollywood system is brilliant precisely because it recycles things. And through having, I don't want to say no original, no originality at all, but by recycling things, we actually make better art and better entertainment. And Singing in the Rain embodies that by being, you know, potentially the greatest musical ever made. So it, 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 it has this sort of premise of like, here's what great filmmaking is in the Hollywood system. And it seems to embody that. It seems to prove it. And I think that, and there are a couple others like Holy Motors potentially is one of these, the Star Trek Next Generation episode, The Inner Light is potentially a, a premise and proof episode. Uh, and I think Sherlock Jr. is one of these. 
that he's he's making a statement about the the difference between theater vaudeville theater where he came from and cinema and how much more is possible in cinema and how marvelous it is to finally be able as humanity to visualize the craziest flights of fantasy in our imagination as we can to be able to like make that visible on screen uh and he he doesn't just seem to advance this premise he seems to prove it as well by making one of the most delightful ridiculous movies ever made and i don't know i i think that it it fully deserves to be placed alongside some of these other like philosophical pieces of cinema because it achieves that and it wouldn't have achieved it if it weren't funny uh, it's not just a conceptual piece. All the jokes work, and they have to work in order for it to be the great thing that it is. I mean, and that's that's sort of my final observation on it. And incredibly dense as well. There are so many jokes. So many. Yeah, like it's only 44 minutes long, but it's just moment, a joke after joke after joke after joke. It's astounding. Um, anyway. Yeah, and it gets funnier every time I watch it. I don't know if that's, <laughs> I don't know, I don't know how many times you have seen it uh, or or Andrew has seen it. But I'm probably at about a dozen at this point, maybe more. And it's funnier every time I watch it, to was, me anyway. I was trying to think of that word that uh, kind of um, where something is what it describes. It, 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 um, is, is autological. Yes, uh, autological. Yeah. Nice. That is a good word. That's a good word for it. Um, sure, I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And Andrew, what about... Oh, sorry. Uh, and any any, no, any I say, anything yeah. that I wanted to, to that I kind of missed or I, I wanted to mention, I was wondering what the house rules were for that game of pool, but he, <laughs> he, he might have just been potting um, uh, but, um, balls the whole time. It, 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 I I I just stopped questioning it. I guess. <laughs> I, like, uh, I know I know it operates by dream logic, but I mean, are we supposed to infer that like again, is it just that Sherlock Jr is this sort of uh comedic savant character who just looks into kind of like, you know, swapping the poison beverage and not hitting the 13 ball, or is he actually a genius detective and has he worked all this stuff out from the let's be frank, not entirely subtle level of communication happening between the <laughs> sheik and the butler? Um, I, di I did wonder that watching it. Now, I know it doesn't actually matter in terms of plot because the end effect is the same, but I'm actually curious, no. Andrew and Andrew plus, plus, plus there could have, um, there might have been um, dialogue that we don't see where it's like, do you want to play a game? No, you just play around on the table. <laughs> yeah. Just enjoy yourself. Also, it is uh, his dream as well, crucially. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> also, the other two guys run out of the room. Like, I, th if he would have to be a pretty bad detective to not notice that something is up when they go running out of the room. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, hey, can we also just say that Sherlock Jr. is a hilarious name for a movie? Yes, yes, it is. Um, to put the junior on the end of practically any of something as something as like I don't know socially regarded as Sherlock Holmes to just throw a junior on the end of that is hilarious. Uh, and also the fact that yeah, it's, it's not shy about his height either as well. Like there's the sequences, <laughs> the sequences where like he's wandering in and studying each of their faces, and he has to kind of like stand up on his tiptoes to stare at Lord Crane's kind of so like, funny. I, <laughs> It is. And it's, it's again, it's, it's that poise, that kind of like, you know, insistence, that kind of very arch quality that you get with the stony face. I think that really works, really sells it. Um, and again, just quickly, in terms of 250 tropes, we tend to notice like, um, is there any food waste here? But I know there is inappropriate smoking. So I know that like the sequence where the sheik is walking and he throws the cigarette over his shoulder and he picks it up and takes a puff of it. I think that's got to be inappropriate, right? 
sort of anti-food waste though it is sort of the opposite of food waste like he's he's trying to be as economical as possible make sure a few more drags out of that cigarette before he throws it away that's fair Um, but also like this notion of mirroring right if you're supposed to shadow like a shadow is supposed to be the exact same shape right as the as the as the thing it's the shadow of he he is doing exactly he's tripping at exactly the same spot he's taking a drag off the cigarette identically um (laughs) and then of course and then of course he has to mirror the movie screen at the very end to find out how to treat his girlfriend so (laughs) again like as you point out the fact that like it starts as a vaudeville gag and then becomes a cinema gag which is the beauty of it again you have that logical progression even in a story that as andrew quite rightly pointed out is like full of tangents it's basically one long tangent uh but it's it's also brilliantly constructed and so cleverly put together all right then i I think that about wraps it up unless anything else we want to discuss anything that we have oh no this is i've i've talked way too long already we definitely i don't need to say anything more thank you so much for having me on um when you when you first emailed me i thought this was going to be all about the paper but i can't tell you how much happier i am that it's about (laughs) sherlock jr instead uh because you know people can go read the paper i said everything i wanted to say but i've never put down my thoughts about sherlock jr in a place where other people can hear him so uh i just i I love to be um, an evangelist for for keaton but this movie especially it's uh, it's so good it is and thank you for suggesting it as well actually because um, we did ask you what you would like to talk about and you said this so thank you very much for doing that alright then uh, before we wrap up what we like to do is we like to ask our guests to recommend something for listeners something you're enjoying at the moment or something that you might think that they might enjoy at the moment it can be something related to this project something unrelated to this project and to give you a chance to think I'm going to ask Andrew to go first well I, I, I won't I won't date this this um, <laughs> podcast by saying I mean the happy new year I, I want to wish this there's yeah, a happy by, new year by saying <laughs> like like I'll, I'll say that I've been enjoying some kind of election um, <laughs> stuff lately but 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 but, but I, I won't say what country it is it could be any election yeah but um, uh, the I, 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 I suppose um, I would recommend the seven percent solution it's a, a a movie yes. that that Darren and I discovered together. Yeah. We were just like, "How have we never heard of this movie?" It's um, I think the thing that might have drawn me and Darren to it was that it was written by Nicholas Meyer, yeah. who did um, the like Wrath of Khan and Country the Undiscovered Country. Wrath of Khan. Um, but it's those are two Star Trek of... movies for listeners who are just wondering where we're plugging those references from. Um, sorry, it's 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 basically it's a um. It's a Sherlock Holmes movie um, where Watson um, takes Sherlock Holmes to meet Sigmund Freud uh, to treat his cocaine-induced uh, delusions. There's a- also Laurence Olivier playing Moriarty. Um, and um, it's Alan Arkin as, as Sigmund Freud, Robert Duvall as, as John Watson. It, it's... Um, and um, I think you can get it on like DVD and Blu-ray. I don't think there's a way of of streaming it, but it is it is worth um, it is worth watching. And it's 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 quite underwatched. So yeah, I'd I'd I'd, I'd recommend that. Um, yeah, and it is worth noting as well that Freud is a nice connection there as well because obviously critics have drawn, as Max alluded to, strong connection between Freud's interpretation of dreams, which was written in 1900, and the young art of cinema that was emerging around that time. So nice thematic connection there, Andrew. Max, what about yourself? What would you recommend? All right, fine. I I, I already recommended uh, one week earlier. Like if you want, if you only want to watch one Keaton feature and one Keaton short, 
which obviously you should see more than that. But if you only want to watch one, one week uh, is the is the one I go with. He made that in 1920. It was the first one he ever released on his own, though not the first one he made. Uh, but it is it is a masterpiece. Um, and again, probably the loudest I've ever wa uh, laughed watching uh, a silent movie, uh, maybe any movie, but uh, the first time I saw it, I just was completely beside myself. I, your mileage may vary, but I still love it. Uh, but actually, since I already said that one, and since you just mentioned Star Trek, and since you also just mentioned Sherlock Holmes, <laughs> I'm going to pivot because I'm watching, I'm, I was, I want to say that I'm rewatching, but I'm actually watching for the first time the complete run of Star Trek The Next Generation right now. I'd never watched it before, <laughs> uh, which is, I think, why the inner light was on my mind earlier. Uh, but the Star Trek Next Generation episode, Ship in a Bottle, from, I think, yes. um, season six, where Moriarty comes back. Uh, so there's the early episode, I think, Elementary, My Dear Data, where Moriarty becomes sentient in the computer. But when they, when he comes back, uh, in Ship in a Bottle, uh, is a magnificent episode about, uh, again, me's on a beam of worlds inside of other worlds, nested realities, Sherlockness. Uh, I think it, I think it, uh, connects to a lot of stuff we're talking about. And it's also really funny. Um, but also pretty, pretty suspenseful too. So Star Trek Next Generation Ship in a Bottle seems to connect to everything we're talking about. So I'm, I'm making it my recommendation. Perfect. Um, and I would the recommend. Yeah, of this podcast right there. Um, I have a less perfect couple of references here, but obviously just silent films in general um, are fantastic, and I really, really love them. Um, and if you had a chance to watch them, most of them are in the, a lot of them are in the public domain available on YouTube. Uh, so well worth seeking out if you get the time. A lot of the short films are on there. We'll include some in our show notes. Um, and also uh, in terms of Hollywood history, we mentioned a couple of stories there, including, say, the Fatty Arbuckle saga, and I think Buster Keaton's time at MGM. Um, Corinna Longworth's uh, wonderful uh, Hollywood history podcast, uh, You Must Remember This, is fantastic and well worth a listen i, I had forgotten her name but i'm like, i'm glad it's you must remember this i had forgotten her name though so yes that's a great <laughs> podcast keep going yeah, sorry yeah. it's a great podcast yeah no you know it is like i again uh because we are in in a situation where i have more podcast listening time than i would have expected i've actually started listening to podcasts so i've listened to all of that it is fantastic all right then um so if people are looking for a bit more max in their lives where can they find you are you available online are you publishing anything what do you uh oh there's a bunch of stuff that's held up uh but uh uh, my Vimeo page is uh, vimeo.com slash Max which um, I imagine you'll link to in the show notes. I don't feel like I need to spell it out. Uh, and then, of course, that article on Bright Lights. Um, I used to care and have a Tumblr that I maintain, but not anymore. So <laughs> and and I have a secret Twitter where I put all of my all of my darkness and I don't want to tell anybody about that. So just go to the Vimeo page. There's some there's maybe some fun video essays there and there should be a new. There should be a new feature-length one that comes out in the next few months. Um, I'm Are already done on Hank it, but I'm who appears on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> if only, if only, yeah. But there, there should be a new feature-length video essay from me in, oh. in the next couple months. It's already done, but I'm trying to find the the right venue to to you know debut it. So. Oh. Uh, so yeah, go ahead and subscribe to my Vimeo and there will be a feature length video essay about the history of the supercut landing pretty soon. So uh, I, I, hopefully I you'll enjoy love that. Supercuts. All right, then uh, that about wraps it up then. Thank you so much, Max. Uh, thank you for coming You're on. So it's a pleasure to have you. Um, yeah, and, thanks so much. And this is great. I know Christmas was a week ago, but this was like my 250 list Christmas. Um, so thank you. But what we, uh, next week, uh, we will hopefully have uh, from Forbes, the wonderful Scott Mendelson will be joining us to talk about Quentin Tarantino's 1994 classic Pulp Fiction. Um, so take it easy, guys. We'll be back next week. Bye.